Good morning, church family. I'm so grateful for that really amazing video that um, our friends Chris and Becca Parker spent a lot of time and energy making. Uh, And it's a wonderful introduction into this new series that we're starting for the next few weeks called Give, the Surprising Grace of Giving. What we're going to be looking at as we move into the Thanksgiving season is we're going to be looking at how one of the fundamental changes that God desires to make in us through Jesus is a transference of identity, that we are no longer consumers, but we become contributors. We're no longer takers, but givers. No longer those who accumulate for ourselves, but who divest ourselves for others. This is actually one of the great signs, as we'll hear today, that the gospel is at work in your life. So we'll be looking not just at the grace of giving our money, but we'll also be looking at time, we'll be looking at our space, we'll be looking at our families, what it means to give our very households away, and ultimately our very lives. And that in the end, this is shockingly one of the great secrets to a happy life. So we're reading this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, one of the great uh, famous passages about giving in the New Testament. So if you turn there, 2 Corinthians 8, the context for this passage is that Paul is writing to his friends in Corinth, and he's asking them to contribute to another group of Christians who are suffering in Jerusalem. They're suffering because of a famine or some sort of recession of some kind. And he is writing them, goading them to give. And one of the ways he's doing that is he's holding up the example of another group of Christians, the Macedonians, who had demonstrated this shocking level of generosity. And Paul is using them to just create a little friendly church competition, if you will, uh, to go them, catalyze them into giving more generously. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll go to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We thank you that it brings light into the dark places of our lives and the dark places of the world, but we, we need your Holy Spirit to understand it and to believe it, and I need your Spirit today. So help me and help all of us so that we might not just hear your word today, but be changed by it so that we might respond to it with our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and actually even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now here's the turn. I'm not commanding you, (laughs) but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us uh, this fall, you know that I've been talking a lot about 
these two great cultural diseases that I believe are infecting all of us, whether we realize it or not. The first one that we've talked about is individualism, which is the sovereignty and the supremacy of the self. And, and we've said in response to that, the good news is that you were not made to be an individual self alone navigating the world, that you were made by God to be a person in community. And God is inviting us out of our isolation and into authentic relationships. That's individualism. But the second disease that I've mentioned but not have gone into great detail about is this disease of consumerism, which is really the the commodification of everything. And it's that disease that we're going to be turning to address more directly in this next series. Years ago, there was a book that came out by a group of social scientists that I thought was really fascinating, and they coined a word that I think is a great description of the condition that we're talking about today. This, this was the word, affluenza. Affluenza. And this is how they define this condition, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Affluenza. Did you know this was going around? Did you know that you are probably infected by this, whether you're old or young, whether you feel like you have a little bit of money or you feel like you have a lot of money, all of us are infected by this nefarious disease. Uh, I counted this week, we got six, I think six or seven Christmas catalogs in the mail. Christmas catalogs, it's not even Halloween yet. And all, all the week, we were all, my whole family, we were all like combing through these catalogs, looking at what we like. And I, at one point, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, Target and Pottery Barn are discipling my family better than I am, <laughs> right? We're all, we're all being discipled and formed all the time by these messages. Your life is lacking. You are missing something fundamental that you need. You will be filled only with the acquisition of better and more. It is the great mantra of our time. You are being formed every single day fundamentally as a consumer. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. One of the great catechisms of the Reformation, as you good Presbyterians know, is the Westminster Catechism. And that great first question, I'm sure you have the entire catechism memorized, uh, but the first question you probably might have heard is, which is, what is the chief end of man? Class, do you know? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well done. However, Jamie Smith, who's one of my favorite philosophers, who's up at Calvin College, He said, you know, we've got to change that for our time. We've got to have a new catechism to understand our age. He says, what actually we believe now is that man's chief end is to acquire more stuff and to enjoy it forever. (laughs) That's who we are. That's who we are. In fact, we know this, that you can actually track this historically, that the less a society believes collectively in God or any kind of transcendent good, the more that society will turn to these two things, sex and the accumulation of material goods to substitute anything for the absence of God. And it's not working. Have you noticed that? Even if you don't believe in God today, friends, have you noticed the fulfillment, the consumerism promises is empty? Do you, I mean... <laughs> We live in the richest society in the history of the world, and we are more overworked and less happy, more in debt, less fulfilled, more depressed and anxious, and less relationally connected than any society in the history of the world. It's not working. 
Affluenza is real, it's powerful, it's potent, and it's probably killing you. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, Paul was writing to his friends in Corinth, and though obviously they are not 21st century Americans and they're not dealing with the same sort of contextual uh, factors that we are today, nevertheless, they too were infected by affluenza. They were infected by this myth of accumulation. They were affected by this delusion of power. And so Paul is writing essentially as a clinician, a physician, a medic, and he is prescribing medicine to cure them of this desolating affluenza within their souls. And what is the medicine that Paul prescribes for the Corinthians? This is actually where a Sunday school answer is the right answer. What is the medicine? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, specifically the grace of Jesus, the grace that we experience in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The message of this passage is this. It's this, my brothers, my sisters, it's this. If you want to know whether the good news of the gospel has deeply taken root and is working through your life. You, kids, you know how you, when you make chocolate chip cookies and you, you, you pour the chocolate chips in and you work them through the dough until they're all the way through? What Paul is saying here is if the way you know if Jesus has worked all the way into you, one of the great ways you know if Jesus has worked himself into your community is if you are marked by a radical, sacrificial, joyful generosity. That's one of the chief signs. Okay, so that's what we're going to see today. And so to do this, we're going to start at the end of the passage. You know, Soren Kierkegaard once said, you live life forward, but understand it backwards. Same with this passage. You understand it backwards. And so we're going to end, we're going to start with the end. Look at the very last verse. This is, I think, one of the most incredible, succinct descriptions of the gospel in the whole Bible. In fact, if you're not a Christian and you're interested in exploring, like, what is the Christian message all about? You could hardly do any better than just this verse. If you, if you just take this verse and study it for a week, you'll know what the Christian message is all about. This is what this verse says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. If you look at this passage carefully, you'll see there are four movements. Christ was rich, Christ became poor. You were poor, through Christ, you become rich. Look, look with me first. I'm going to use my little pointer here. Um, can you see that? Can you see that? Okay, first, Christ was rich. What does that mean? This is talking about, this is kind of crazy to think about. This is talking about the pre-existence of Jesus before he was born. Were any of you, did any of you exist before you were born? Show of hands. I don't think so. Jesus did. He existed before he was born. He was a, existed for all eternity as a member of the triune God in deep, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. For all eternity, he enjoyed cosmic, everlasting, supernatural affluence. I mean, you don't get much richer than being in the Godhead. You know what I mean? I mean, he owned everything. He owned all of creation, all of the universe, all of the comets, all of the black holes, all of the planets, everything. And he was completely immune from all of the the, the frailties of human existence. And yet, what does it say? What's the second movement? 
he became poor. Which means literally he became poor. He was born to a poor teenage unwed mother. He lived most of his life in poverty. He was a homeless man. But also spiritually he became poor in the sense that he laid aside the dignity and glory of his divinity. Kids, listen. Jesus was God and he, he became like you. So that, you know, like he fell down and got scratches. He had boo-boos. He had rash. He had acne. You know, he, he laid aside the glory of his divinity and became a human being. And not only that, he surrendered himself to things like misunderstanding, betrayal, injustice, torture, confusion, execution, ultimate damnation. Jesus surrendered himself. He, laid, he could not have divested his assets more thoroughly. He could not have voluntarily impoverished himself more completely. Why did he do this? Look, so that you, you who were poor in your sin, cut off from God, in your sin, cut off from the meaning of life, in your sin, cut off and destined for damnation, friends. You were poor and impoverished and destitute in your sin and the final movement so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That when anyone trusts in Jesus Christ, not only does he take on your condemnation, your judgment, your sin, your damnation and shame, but then he gives to you all of his assets. It's a seriously bum deal for Jesus. He takes on what is yours, gives to you his assets, his power, his righteousness, his status as the firstborn child of God. He gives you his freedom from, from darkness and death and hell. And, and, and he gives you the promise of a resurrection body and a renewed creation. All of it for free. A gift of grace. That's the gospel. The rich Christ became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I know some of you do. Do you believe that you are this destitute without the grace of Jesus? This needy? And do you believe that Jesus voluntarily impoverished himself this thoroughly for your eternal riches and inheritance? But here's the funny thing about this. Paul says, if you really want to know, like if you really want to know if you believe this, here's what you do. Look at your checkbook. Y'all, this, 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 doc, this amazing verse of profound doctrine is not in the book of Romans. It's not in some theological treatise. It's in a fundraising letter. It's in a fundraising letter. He, what he's saying is the chief sign that you will know if this gospel has worked deep and penetrated into your heart is that you have become a person who gives like Jesus, who is this radical, this generous, this joyful. In your generosity. If you know the gospel, it will change the way you give. It will change the way you give. How? Well, at least three things. It'll change when you give, it'll change how you give, and it'll change why you give. Let's look at each of those. First of all, if you really begin to grasp the gospel, it changes when you give. When do we give? When do we give, friends? We give when things are going well. You know, this is the basic rule of economics. Like, when the markets are high, when the economy is flourishing, charitable giving is up. When there is a protracted economic recession, charitable giving goes down. When it rebounds, charitable giving goes back up again. This is a basic rule of economics. You can track this throughout American history. Not so the Macedonians. Look at this. It says in verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, 
their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This is crazy. Any economists out there, they contravened a basic rule of economics. Do you see that? They contravened a basic rule of economics. As, as their assets went down, their generosity went up. How could this be? It was because they had a different set of assets. Their riches had become bound up in Jesus Christ. You know, money is power. Wealth is power. Possessions are power. They give you a great sense of security. When I have them, I feel like my life is secure. I feel like my future is secure. My kid's future is secure. They give us significance. They give, they give us a sense of um, identity, uh, worth, and value about who we are. Our money, our possessions, our, our, our resources, they do those things for us. And the more that you anchor your significance and security in your money and your possessions, the less you will be able to give any of it away, except when there's a surplus. But when the gospel begins to take root in a heart the way that it did in the Macedonians, your trust, your identity, your significance, your security transfers to Jesus Christ, and suddenly the things that once were so important to you become far more expendable. So just imagine, like, for example, you had a disease, a terminal illness, and, uh, your doctor came to you one day and he said, um, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is research found a cure for your illness. Bad news is it's really, really expensive. Probably it's going to cost you everything you have. Probably going to have to sell off your stuff, liquidate your stocks, downsize your house, maybe even get rid of your wedding china. You know, it's going to cost you everything, so I'm not sure that you're going to be interested in this. What do you say? Yeah, you know, I just can't get rid of that wedding china. I love pulling it out every six and a half years. You know, <laughs> it's just too, it's too important to me. Of course you're not going to say that. Why? Because what good is wedding china if you're dead? And so your illness and the treatment in response to it clarifies your perspective so that suddenly the things that were of great value to you are now expendable because something now is more important. And this is what happened to the Macedonians, is that what was once so valuable to them transferred to Jesus. So Jesus has become their riches. Jesus has become their significance. Jesus has become their security. Jesus has become their identity. And so that once was now so important to them has become expendable. And so now they can give, not just when their bank accounts are full, but when they're empty. Not just when there's a surplus, but when there's scarcity, because their true riches are untouched by any fluctuation of the market. Their true riches are impervious to any circumstance. That's why the gospel changes when we give. So that we're able to give not just when there's a surplus, but even when there's scarcity. Isn't that amazing? The second thing the gospel does is it changes how we give. How do we normally give? Well, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. This is, this is what is so terrible about being a preacher, is that you have to deal with the word of God in your own life every single week so you're not a total hypocrite. Which, which I am, I feel like, every single week. So I'm wrestling with this text this week, thinking about how I give. And you don't want to know, honestly, how I typically approach my giving? Look at my family's needs. Look at my personal needs and wants. Set aside some money for future investments, education, retirement, all that. Set aside some stuff for some midterm savings, for emergencies, that kind of thing. And then what's ever left over, maybe some of that I'll give away. We give out of our leftovers. Look at the Macedonians. Look at how they get. Verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us 
Y'all, this is crazy. Most of us spend beyond our means. The Macedonians were giving beyond their means. Giving beyond what was actually financially responsible to give. How could this be? Again, something had happened to them. The gospel had taken root in their hearts and they began to change. Their standard changed. Their understanding of life's necessities began to change. They were willing to give so much that it actually altered the way that they lived their lives. Have you guys heard the story about the farmer who had a beloved cow and she was pregnant and the cow gave birth to two calves? He couldn't believe it. Two twin calves. And he ran to his wife and he said, wife, you'll never believe it. Our cow gave birth to twins. Here's what I want to do. I'm so grateful to the Lord. We're going to raise these calves. They're going to grow up. And then when they're grown, I'm going to take one of the calves and I'm going to sell him off and give all the money to the Lord. And she said, husband, that sounds like a great idea. So a few months later, the, the, the farmer comes in looking very forlorn. She says, what's wrong, husband? He says, oh, oh, wife, you'll never believe it. One of our calves died. She said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. He said, the worst thing of all, it was the Lord's calf that died. <laughs> it's the Lord's calf. See, friends, I'm pretty sure that in my life and yours, it's the Lord's calf that always dies. It's the Lord's calf that always dies. You know, if I say I can't afford to give, what I mean is I can't afford to make a dent in my lifestyle. I, I can't afford to, to bear the cost. The Macedonians weren't even thinking about cost. I'll, I'll never forget a conversation I had actually with one of you, one of you who is a model to me of generosity. I was talking with him one day um, about tithing. And he just frankly admitted, he said, you know, frankly, I don't even think about tithing anymore. I said, oh, really? I was ready to kind of fight him a little bit about it. And he said, because for me, if I were just simply tithe, it would make no effect on my lifestyle whatsoever. I said, really? So what do you do? And he said, well, I've had to change my standard. I said, instead of thinking about the tithe, this is what he said. He said, I think about the cross. I think about the sacrifice of Jesus, and I think about the degree to which he didn't tithe his blood. He didn't didn't give out of what was left over. Uh, he, he, He didn't give out of his riches. He gave all of his riches. And so for him, his standard had changed. Is this going to cost me? And if you're not thinking about that, you're not really thinking about the gospel. I was so affected by that. And what it made me realize is that for some of us, the tithe actually will be that. Many of us, the tithe is costly and will actually make a dent in your lifestyle. But for others of us, it won't be a drop in the bucket. And so to ask ourselves, are we giving in such a way that is actually effect, go, not just from what's left over, but is going to the center of things, that is affecting what restaurants we might eat at, what clubs we might join, what vacations we might take? Is the gospel, is the sacrificial generosity of Jesus shaping us so fundamentally that we're not just giving out of the leftovers, but we're giving out of the heart of the center of things? That's how the gospel changes how we give. Finally, though, the gospel changes why we give. Why do we give? Well, we give out a lot of reasons. We give out of guilt. I feel guilty because they have less, I have more. We give out of obligation. Oh, I feel like I'm supposed to, or Corey says I'm supposed to, or whatever. We give out of uh, pride. You know, remember Jerry Lewis, telephone, 
Give $100 right now. You can look at the mirror and know that you are a good person. Remember that? Like, we, we seriously, that's part of the reason why we give, to feel better about ourselves personally. Uh, we, we give out of, um, some of us even give for financial gain, uh, to lower our tax bracket, um, for some sort of return on investment, or to have more power over whatever board or organization we're giving to. So here's the thing. All of those reasons for giving are ultimately selfish. Ultimately, it's giving to yourself, to assuage guilt or to handle a sense of duty or to make yourself feel better about yourself. But not so the Macedonians. What does it say? Verse 2, they gave their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. They didn't feel guilty. Those that they were giving to had less money than they did. I mean, they had less money than those they were giving to. The reason they gave is this overflowing joy, first, because they were so excited about being a part of what God was doing, and second, because they were so grateful to what Jesus had done in giving so generously to them. This overflowing joy welled up of their hearts like a spring and resulted in this excessive, sacrificial, joyful generosity, not done for themselves, but for the sake of love. Now, I know I've told you this story before, but one last story. There's a farmer, and he grows an enormous carrot, and he takes it. Listen to me on this, kids, okay? Listen to this story. He grows this enormous carrot, and he takes it to his king because he loves his king, and he says, oh, my dear king, I love you, and I'm so committed to you, and so I bring to you today my very best carrot as a token of my love. And the king is so moved by the generous heart who sees this, this farmer has nothing desirous in return. And so he says, go, take this plot of land. I see you are a good steward of the earth and use it and grow it for your own good and for your own family. And the farmer is so moved, he says, thank you. And he goes away. Now the nobleman was in the court and watching all of this. And he thought, hmm, if that's what you get for a carrot, mm -hmm, I wonder what I could get for something worth a little more. And so the next day he came to the farmer with a beautiful black stallion. And he said, oh, my king, I raise horses, and this is the very best, very greatest stallion I have ever raised. And I give it to you today, my king, as a token of my love. Now, the king was a wise king, and seeing into the heart of man, he discerned that this man was giving the horse only to get something for himself. So he took the horse, said thank you, and dismissed him from the court. He saw the perplexed look on the nobleman's face, and the nobleman I was obviously confused, and the king said, let me explain. The farmer gave the carrot as a gift of love from the heart, but you are just trying to make a profit. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And that's what the gospel does, friends. It changes the heart so that you're no longer giving for yourself. You're no longer giving for personal gain. You're no longer giving even out of guilt or duty or obligation. You are just simply like the farmer, giving out of love. Joyful generosity welling up from the heart. So friends, did you know that affluenza is on the move? And this week I was vaccinated for influenza at my doctor. But have you been vaccinated for affluenza? And the vaccine is the gospel. 
The vaccine is the great truth that the rich Christ has become poor to make poor sinners rich. And when this gets into your soul, it changes, it, it changes when you give, that you give not just in surplus but in scarcity. It changes how we give, that we give not just out of the leftovers but out of the center of our lives. And it also changes why we give, that we don't give for ourselves but we give out of overflowing joy. Love for our king. So friends, let me close with a quote from a Presbyterian Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, who preached in Scotland over 150 years ago, and he was preaching a sermon in 2 Corinthians 8. Let me close with his words. Friends, do you know the grace of Christ? Oh, my dear friends, if you would be like Christ, you will become like him in giving. Because though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Some may object, well, my money is my own. Answer, Christ may have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. And then where would you be? Objection two, but many people in need are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have looked at you and said, look at these wicked rebels. Should I lay down my life for these? No, I will give to the good angels who are far more deserving. But no, he left the 99 sheep and came after the lost. He gave his blood to the undeserving. Objection three, but people who I give my money to might abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing with far greater truth. Christ knew thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make his blood an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his blood. My dear Christians, if you want to be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, even to the vile, even to the undeserving. I love this. As Christ is glorious and happy, so shall you be. He says, it's not your money I want, it's your happiness. It's your happiness. Remember his words, it is more happy to give than to receive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you and thank you for your rich, lavish, inexplicable, sacrificial, never-stopping, unending grace. Thank you that you have freely poured your grace out for us, becoming poor to make poor sinners rich. And we pray that this grace in these coming weeks and months, would so work into our hearts as a people that we would become famous for our sacrificial generosity that is flowing out of a joyful heart because we are so deeply grateful for your amazing grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.